it couldn't happen. It, could, right. it couldn't happen with anybody but those four. Those were the best four players for that band, and that band was ass wampin'. Oh. I'm Tommy and I'm Tony. I'm Carlo and this is Vinyl Salad. Guys, I'm looking forward to this one. I've been thinking about it for several weeks already and we all started thinking about this episode long ago mm-hmm. <laughs> because you remember Mm-hmm. Tony, Carlo, you remember back when we were just getting our legs under us and we recorded the first couple episodes of Vinyl Salad, we felt we had everything in the in the can, everything's recorded, all sounds good, we did it, and then we shut off the record, we, we unclicked the record button and did a celebration lap where we did what we always do. We started talking about music. And we started talking about off off the record, off podcast. We started talking about a particular band. Van Halen is not a band. I don't think, and you guys can can jog my memory. I don't think it's a band that the three of us really experienced together too much. Correct. We were maybe maybe you two guys as brothers were experiencing it that band together, uh, but but it, it wasn't. It wasn't something that we three collectively spoke about, but we sure went off without the record button lit up uh, that night. So we felt, let's do a Van Halen podcast. Uh, let's pay tribute to this band that means a lot to us and, and talk about how uh, how they struck us, how they hit us, how we found them. Yeah, I mean, for us, I think I think Van Halen was a no-brainer for the three mm-hmm. of us in terms of uh, a band that we just were all pretty excited about when we were first being exposed to Van Halen. And I think that in my case, uh, there was this band Van Halen that was starting to get a little airplay with, uh, with running with the devil. Mm-hmm. And they, the word was out is that they had this, you know, amazingly talented lead guitarist and that there were two brothers in the band. And this lead guitarist had this crazy solo called Eruption. But uh, for for us, I think I had heard you really got me on the radio, right. but I had seen yeah, more about pretty, it because they were, they were pretty well hyped in 78. And then I think we first purchased Van Halen too. Yes. And, and it struck us that these guys were doing something totally different and it was fun and it was heavy and it was just kind of, mm. it was not dark we all have probably the same reaction it was hard not to like these guys i think i I was struggling uh, around that time and i was it was kind of a downer that kiss was on the decline yeah so dynasty had 78 yeah i I, I remember by 78 uh i think they were getting into their post love gun i think they were getting into their solo albums and this is like around kiss meets the phantom yeah uh phantom of the park movie disaster (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was not a huge police fan. They're breaking through. Blondie's breaking through. I mean, these are bands I, I, I grew to like, but Dance the Night of the Way from Van Halen 2 was the song that really got the exposure, I think, on New York radio. 
I don't recall ever hearing that kind of guitar sound. I do remember David Lee Roth on Cream Magazine. I do remember the Van Halen Brothers and Circus. And for me personally, I was looking for a band. I was, I was, I, I loved the Kinks. Tommy, we, we loved the Kinks. My brother yeah. and I loved the Kinks. Yeah. The fact that they did You Really Got Me was a big deal. We could understand that. We could relate to that. Um, yeah, I think it's, it was the same exact for, for me. I, my first record from Van Halen was the second one. Yeah. Um, and You're No Good got radio yeah. play. And it's, it's great. I mean, the one-two punch on that album, You're No Good and Dance on Either Way, sure. incredible. But, but then everything else that follows is yeah. somebody, Get Me a Doctor and Bottoms Up and Out of Love Again. Like, it, that is a an ass kicking record uh to be the first one that i i experienced from them but dance the night away it's got that it's got those harmonies that you didn't hear in hard rock mm -hmm. at, at the time and i dug that i was like wow this is like am i into pop music now well no because because <laughs> listen to that solo and listen to those drums but the fact is, is that they could write a really catchy song that was very accessible. Mm -hmm. And at the same, on that same album, they could write DOA mm -hmm. uh, and they could write, you know, bottoms up. Right. I think, I think with Van Halen is that they, they got the joke. Um, they didn't take themselves too seriously. I think you saw that with Dave uh, mm -hmm. and the band, but, but the reality is, is that they had ridiculous chops oh, and they tremendous. were really witty. And so you had to take them seriously. You know, you, you just had to take Eddie seriously, right? And you had to take that rhythm section seriously. Oh, um, and, and you did. And uh, mm. here's a band that, you know, think about Van Halen too. It was three or four years after Linda Ronstadt had the hit, You're No Good. Right. And they're going to open their second album, <laughs> which, which with, with that. And with a cover like, to begin with is, yeah. a, is, is enough of a ballsy move. Ballsy move a after after doing it the first time around, and they would go on to do covers and do covers really well. And we'll Very talk well. about this, I'm sure, throughout this podcast. But uh, you know, they they it was hard not to like them, and I think also it was really hard for critics not to like them because they couldn't ignore the talent of the band, even if you thought Dave was over the top, you mm -hmm. just could not ignore that they were bringing really catchy, heavy rock and roll and doing it in a way that no one else had done it before. And, and critics did did love them, but yeah. critics then thought it was a clown show mm -hmm. plus Eddie Van Halen. And David Lee's, I, I love the, the quote, I've never forgotten it, David Lee Roth's quote in whatever, Rolling Stone magazine or Cream magazine, where he says, the reason reason most rock critics love Elvis Costello so much and hate Van Halen is because they all they look, look like, like Elvis Costello. <laughs> it's great. So he was, they were feeling a little insecure. He was feeling a little insecure about like the, the new wave getting some attention that maybe he and the, and the, the VH brothers and Michael should have been getting. Um, so uh, 1978, and I really wasn't embracing Elvis Costello yet. Um, or even, I think the talking heads were even emerging. And so the Van Halen sound, eighth grade, seventh grade, playing electric guitar in a garage band here or there. Uh, Eddie Van Halen was incredibly appealing. 
I mean, mean, especially at 78, you're talking about what do we have coming on the radio? I mean, no offense against Kansas and Jerry Rafferty, but like we're listening to (laughs) Dust in the Wind in Baker Street. And all of a sudden there's this guy, Nick Nick Gilder, hot child in the city. And all of a sudden, you know, eruption Mm -hmm. is, 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 is on the radio. Rarely, by the way, because it wasn't, it was an instrumental, but like, you know, these guys are coming at it. Like, you know what, this is what we do. (laughs) And, you know, and just get out of my way. And any kid I knew who was playing guitar back then, all of a sudden wanted to learn how to finger tap. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Because Eddie Van Halen was doing it. And uh, I remember, you know, as I got older in high school and, you know, all the, the really good guitarists who hung out in the corner, um, they were all trying to do the Eddie Van Halen finger taps. And it was like, it was a competition. Yep. They're all passing the guitar around like a, like a, like a baton. Who could do like it? Like a musical joint. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. It, it, my poor guitar teacher, you know, he would come over and he was teaching me you know, all the, you know, Beatles stuff, teaching me how to read music. And then I would put Van Halen too on. Okay, could you teach me this? Can you teach me the soft song, Dance the Night Away? Right, and he was yeah. very patient. I think I even put Spanish fly on. I think he was impressed by that. But um, but that's where kind of my head was at. And uh, it, it really, really took off. Uh, I would say by the time Woman and Children first came, um, the third album, that was the album that I really, yeah, really that was my, embraced. Yeah. That was same same for me. That 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 was 1980. So we were 13 years old, yes. and you know, just the, the cradle will rock, oh. like juniors juniors grades, oh. and the 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 banter in the middle, like that hits yes. a 13 year old boy a certain way. And like, oh my look, goodness, look, and, I'll and, pay you for it. What the you know? Like, and, to, and Tony, what was the song you and I sang most of the time together? It was actually "Could This Be Magic." Yeah, we, because it, we because love it the actually, humor. Yeah, we love the humor. Uh oh. In <laughs> a simple rhyme for me was the song where I really, really was so impressed. To this day, it's probably my favorite Van Halen song um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I think they're all they're all going on all cylinders. You hear a strong bass line from Michael Anthony. You got Alex beginning with a kind of a big band drum sound. Um, at times you isolate Michael Anthony, it sounds like John Entwistle in The Real Me, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, it took me a while because I have to say, looking back, I was probably intimidated by Eddie Van Halen. You, know, you should and, have been. And Van Halen <laughs> wanted to. Here I am, ba- barely playing chords on an acoustic guitar with a DiMarzio pickup on it, right? I mean, I, had, I, I didn't have an electric guitar by that time. I had, a, had an acoustic electric into a cheap amp that I got at Sam Goody. And uh, but by 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 the time women and children came, I actually got an electric guitar. So I'm really f- starting to really like Van Halen and to be less intimidated by can play them for anything today. But that's OK. <laughs> <laughs> five albums in five years. Wow. Who five albums that? in five years. Five, in, in like pretty much uh, pretty much in five straight springs it was like basically march or april february march or april beginning of the year when the next van halen record would come out and tony what you're saying about like our entry point to the band was van halen 2 we we heard it the music they started playing it on the radio 
We heard it. We got it. We loved it. So we go all, all of us go back and get Van Halen one, get that right. first mm-hmm. one. And we love that debut album. Mm. Is there a debut album that's got more balls than that one? Now, the thing about women and children first is that's the first one that's completely ours. Right. Now, now we know the band yes. yeah. and we know wow. they're going to release an album and it mm-hmm. comes out and we get it. And, and it's that one is completely ours. Sort of the kind of thinking that I had when Eddie Van Halen died. Mm-hmm. One of the things that occurred to me was that he was the first guitar hero who was entirely within my realm, within my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not exist previously. He, he, he came out of nowhere in the late 70s. I embraced that mm-hmm. sound and that guy, mm-hmm. and it was entirely within my life. Uh, it, it meant a lot to me. He was the first mm-hmm. and only guitar player who was just a guitar hero, who was just completely mm-hmm. within the target of the years that I've been alive. Yeah. And he looked and he looked like he he looked like a kid. The way he dressed on stage with no always shirt. in sneakers, right? Always in sneakers. And he was always laughing. He didn't have this like Goofy grin. Yeah. He didn't have this attitude, right? Like uh like on stage this like serious. He was having a blast. And but you're absolutely right that's a great point, you know. We grew up and we knew about the the Hendrix Smith, but that was that was t- from a time that we really didn't experience. I mean, they were Hendrick, all mythological. They were yeah. all mythological. Van Halen. They look like they just got out of high school <laughs> at times. And every photo of them was always like <laughs> Eddie grinning, Eddie mugging, Eddie in the air, Dave in the air, you know. Um, Cigarettes, Jack Daniels. Yeah, but but just never, right. you know, it was never dark. I mean, I know yeah, that you know, we'll, get to fair, we'll get to fair warning, and I guess that's kind of quote a dark album in terms of lyrical content. But let's be real, like these guys, these guys like were writing about, you know, the lowest common denominator, but they made it fun. And frankly, you know, they were not a blues based band, no, right? They were like they, 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 this was not Aerosmith pretending, you know, influenced by the Stones. Yes, this guy, Eddie, grew up listening to Jimmy, Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix, but their sound was they created the blueprint for what we know as, you know, heavy metal, like 80s hair band metal, all that stuff that came mm-hmm. after them. And even Randy Rhodes, like all those guys without Van Halen, mm-hmm. um, you wouldn't have Motley Crue, you know, you wouldn't mm-hmm. have any of those bands. Yeah, that's a great point. If they were very much their own archetype, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but if I hear influences now, and David Lee Roth has spoken about how many songs, cover songs they played mm-hmm. when they were starting out and gigging. And he's made it very clear. They did their 10,000 hours of gigging, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And they could play anything. They could play Motown. They could play Casey in the Sunshine, Sunshine Band. ZZ Top. They were playing the Ohio players, right? I mean, he said, we were even playing the Ohio players, but there were their own they really were their own archetype. If I hear anything now, I didn't hear it back then as I've gotten older, right? And, uh, you know, I try to say, well, who, who was influencing me? I, you know, for me, I, that harmony, that, that uh, David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony harmony, I, you know, I may be a Deep Purple around Burn when uh, uh, Glenn Hughes is uh, paired up with uh, David Co- Coverdale. I hear some of the influence there, but it's, it's in passing. Because there yeah. is no sound 
like Van Halen. David Lee Roth has said that, he said this in Rogan, he goes, uh, yeah, you know, Paul Simon is great, but then there's Garfunkel. And that's how we described his relationship. Great. That, that interaction with Michael Anthony, who gets zero respect. I, I, I'm just stunned yeah. by the lack of respect that someone Michael, they, they said, well, he's a good, well, he was a good bassist, right? But I'm like, you try to back up Eddie Van Halen. No pressure there, right? We mm -hmm. talk about great rhythm sections. And, and, you know, Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts, phenomenal rhythm section. But they weren't backing up Eddie Van Halen. And we never, when, you know, whenever the discussion comes on great rhythm sections, I never hear Michael Anthony, Alex Van Halen. And that, that's very perplexing. To it's me. too bad. It's too bad. It, 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 I, I want to talk about how people perceive each of these players in the band. Because sure. I, I need you, I need sure. you fellas to feed me your opinions and, and we'll figure out between the three of us sure. what is the truth. But the thing, Michael Anthony's bass side one track one mm -hmm. album one running with the devil oh. it's so hard to hit those notes right. singularly boom, mm -hmm. boom, boom, boom. like mm -hmm. incredible playing mm -hmm. and there's a guy who doesn't get the the credit that he deserves for being a solid bass player not I... the best bass player he is not getty lee and he is he's never going to be uh my friend from primus who's right and so you know the the kids i grew up with in high school if they weren't trying to do eddie van Halen finger tapping they had rickenbacker basses to try to duplicate getty lee bass lines but you know there was never michael anthony was never part of the discussion and I think it might have been his persona on stage. I mean, Tony, you've, you know, you've talked about it, the first Van Halen show you, you saw. And then, you, you know, Mike, I remember you telling me about Michael Anthony's long bass solo. Yeah, I think, I think they were, they, you know, I mean, they were also playing Madison Square Garden for the right. Fair Warning Tour. But I, yeah. I'll, I, I think that, I think the point you made, Carlo, like, you know, this is, how do these guys keep up with Eddie Van Halen? Let's exactly. think of Jimi Hendrix's rhythm section. Right. We've got Mitch Mitchell. We've got Noel Redding, right. uh, Billy Cox. <laughs> I mean, these guys are also ridiculously regarded musicians, right? Absolutely. And we forget about them simply because they happen to be playing with a true God, like a once in a lifetime, once in a generation God. But right. uh, the only people that can keep up with Eddie Van Halen, because he was so fast, I think are Alex and Michael Anthony. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Think about think about like you you. There's a reason why I think Alex Van Halen has that double, you know, double bass drum gallop right that you mm -hmm. hear on Hot for Teacher, but you hear every, all the time. And when he's hitting that cymbal like really fast, right? And it's because he's trying to keep up with Eddie because it's yeah. not the tempo generally is pretty. It's not a rock and roll blues based tempo, mm -hmm. which is kind of mid tempo. Right. Um, it's intense. They, they, <laughs> they, they played at punk rock tempo. They, they uh, you know what? They did. Point. They did. They did. And uh, you, you want to talk about keeping up. The, I'm going to go back to Running With The Devil in the first two, three, mm -hmm. probably four albums. Those are all, those were recorded live in the studio. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no Pro Tools. There's no grid to put that music mm -hmm. up on. This, uh, and if you hear, and I, I've listened because I'm a nerd and I dig this stuff, I go and find the isolated tracks. So I've listened to Michael Anthony's isolated, isolated mm -hmm. bass. Mm -hmm. 
and you can hear the bleed of the guitar and the drums because everybody's playing that song. They played that stuff live. live. And th- so those tunes that you're hearing, there might be some edits. Like we took the first sure. 45 seconds of this and we, we edited in the mm-hmm. next 60 seconds of, of the third take, but they're all playing live. They're all playing together. Those are four guys making music in the studio. Uh, I, I had recently watched, uh, Rick Beato had done a, a whole thing on recreating the Van Halen snare sound. and uh, The brown sound, so yeah. to speak. And it's really uh, quite, quite incredible to watch Alex Van Halen. And I've been watching a lot of his drumming. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a beast. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he, he's, he's a beast. He's, he is an absolute yeah. beast. Yeah, you mentioned Hot for Teacher, Tony. Uh, that the the I, I I believe the bass drums only come in later. He starts that on toms and snare. Toms. He's yeah. playing that with his hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can hear. You can even if you again isolated tracks. I'm a nerd. I'm a geek. You can hear the sticks hitting each other. Right. Yeah. The sticks click. Mm-hmm. It's so funny because Eddie's not even going to be part of this conversation. But now Alex. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so well, think we, about we, this, Tom. When we talk yep. about the pantheon of great drummers, his name never comes up. Nope. Okay. Even Alex Van Alex is in the shadow of his brother. Right. Which, but I think far, that's. I think as that's far it. as drummers, and they always talk about Bonham, Bonham Keith Moon, Ginger Neil, Baker. Ginger Baker. They bring Stuart Copeland. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same names. Phenomenal. But mm-hmm. I would say this. Would the Van Halen sound be the same without Alex Van Halen? No, 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 it would not. You're right. And that's, and that's it. That's what we talk about this band having a singular sound and it's a singular sound because of the four people. Yes. It is a singular sound because no other group interchangeably like they brought in Hagar. Didn't sound like, didn't sound like the albums that we're talking about. Absolutely. Right. It, it, it couldn't happen. It, could, right. it couldn't happen with anybody but those four. Those were the best four players for that band, and that band was ass womping. Oh. And we know, we know that Eddie and Alex, uh, it's pretty well documented, uh, how much music they had in their lives as, as kids. These guys were incredibly musically literate highly literate and i think the public persona of you know a van halen this kind of party band good time band it does overshadow the musicianship of you know everyone knows about eddie but i think it overshadows the musicianship of of uh, alex and michael anthony and david the Lee personalities the personalities people, weren't as big people talk about david lee roth you know as this character right as this great stage presence right but what what a great freaking voice, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, talk about is, isolating yeah. his voice. He yeah. had a tremendous amount of range, and he had he brought funk, he brought soul. Yeah, he had and pitch. He had some great pitch. Absolutely, and and he was, uh, and at times I, I heard an interview with him. At times he goes, people didn't get the joke. He's actually imitating some of his favorite singers. He's doing a little James Brown, for example, right? Yeah, um, some Louis Prima. Yeah, right. He could be exactly. He was doing Louis Prima. That's, that's right. True. That's right. It's, it's his first solo singles. Right. Yeah, and 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 but 
who is anywhere like him in, in, in the history of rock music? I mean, again, isolate his voice. Who, who was like, there were screamers, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were. Ian, and I, I'm Ian, Gillen, the... Ian Gillen was a screamer. Um, Rob Halford was a screamer. Rob with, Halford was, was an amazing screamer. Steven Tyler was a screamer. But Still I, I, nobody like David Lee. Yeah, I would say that in Dave's case, again, it, I think it's precisely because, you know, because he didn't take himself too seriously that you actually appreciated him for this feel good music and these feel good lyrics. Mm -hmm. And yes, at times they were a little sophomoric and, you know, you know, in terms of topics, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like he, he's David Bowie, you know, in terms of his <laughs> lyrics. Right. Right. But that's not the point. Um, you know, the point is, is that he was, he, he was, again, he, he was part of this, this band has been together for how many years before yeah. they broke, you know, and he was part of that band and, and they will, Alex and Ed will always say that, listen, it was, it was the three of us creating the sound. And um, he, and he said, and he has said, they practiced like crazy. All the time. They practiced all the time. Can we, uh, can we talk a little about, a little more about David Lee's vocals because people I trust tell me outright that guy can't sing couldn't oh even even forget forget now he's lost chops fine but they will tell me then he couldn't sing that man couldn't sing and people I trust will also tell me wow what a voice mm -hmm. what a way to do he found a way to do so much with so little natural talent, he worked around with his voice hmm. and made it work. And he had great pitch. So I don't, I don't know. You guys can please help me settle, uh, settle, <laughs> figure out what I should believe because I believe he was great. Well, I think he is in the pantheon of the greatest rock vocalists. I put him in the pantheon of, with Robert Plant. Mm -hmm. I do. Because, and again, I think the public persona gets in the way sometimes of the talent. I think, you know, that kind of little, that party, you know, you know the, the Michael Anthony with the JD gets in the way of his, the people appreciating him as a phenomenal bass player. I think this is, for me, and, I'm, and again, I'm not, I'm not a vocalist, <laughs> uh, never had vocal training. I think sometimes uh, a little snobbery comes into play how people view certain musicians, right? I think that um, might be it. I, I think, think that's you're onto true. it. They just speak, assume, sir, speak. They just assume that because they're playing headbanging rock and roll or what have you, oh, they weren't classically trained or they weren't, they didn't understand theory. They, they, they you know, it, it's, it's, they're making noise and everything's happening by accident, right? I often say when you when you listen to interviews of, of people like David Lee Roth, again, these these long, unfiltered interviews, um, he had voice lessons, no doubt about it. And he talks openly about one of his voice coaches uh, was a Holocaust survivor. And he speaks very movingly on that. Um, but his knowledge of so many different genres, he talks about his dad gifting him with Al Jolson records. You know, because David Lee Roth has a little swing in him. 
you know, I think he has a great appreciation for jazz. He has a great appreciation for, for funk. But I, I don't know what people expect. I mean, this is always the case, right? There are people who say that about Robert Plant, right? Um, yeah, I, I think I think Carla, you're right on the snobbery, right? Let's 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 be clear. This is rock and roll. Yeah, it's rock and, and roll. Most 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 of the rock and roll vocalists are not classically trained, right? And not right. everybody sounds like Ronnie James Dio or Freddie Mercury, and that's not, okay yeah. because it's not rock everyone, and roll. Not everyone can be Freddie Mercury, but some people are going to be Paul King Westerberg. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And and some people some people are just going to be Lou yeah. Reed. Who, frankly, right. you know, might you know? I mean, you know, I mean, we we love the Velvet Underground and we love Lou Reed solo, but like, listen, at the end of the day, the 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 the, the guy sounds, you know, he sounds like he could be a commentator on sixty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I would pay to go see David Lee Roth just to do the Great American Songbook. <laughs> <laughs> at Michael's in New York. I think he would do right? a better job doing the Great American Soul Book than say Brian Ferry or uh, Rod Stewart, both of whom, I, you know, I love those guys, but like, I don't I'd need Rod bored. Stewart doing the Great American Song Book. I need Rod Stewart. Like, go back and give me some of your faces stuff. That's yeah, what I yeah. Like. Let's let's go back. Yeah, and and Dave but, would yeah. enjoy doing that songbook more than the others. Right, oh, yeah. and, and and you know, and uh, by the way, David Lee Roth has said complimentary things about Rod Stewart. He says. You know it's Rod Stewart. It's the voice. Mm -hmm. uh, Rod Stewart doing the Great American Songbook bores me. I'm going to be honest with you. But David Lee Roth, because you know, you know in his spare time he's probably singing a lot of these tunes. and you catch He's listening it. to Cole Porter. And you, of course he is. And you catch it, right? You catch it in Could This Be Magic, right? And stuff like that. Um, that desire to break out. But I would, oh, I would love to see him do the great American songbook. I, can we I start think, this? Can we get, we could probably start something to get this happening. We've got this <laughs> podcast. Now we've got a, a, a forum to, to get this started. I'm if Dave, you think Dave that David like Lee Roth work, it would should, be fun for him. should do the great American songbook vote right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we will put, we'll put something together and, and reach out to Dave and Dave's people and see if we, and, and see if we can't get them in a post pandemic club somewhere doing, doing five nights a week. I would, I would love that. You know what I would love? to see and I haven't seen on uh, on YouTube is that Eddie has had a series. He, he hasn't had one guitar tech. He's had several guitar techs over his career, but you imagine all those guys getting into a room <laughs> and just like, you know, reminiscing, right? Just getting a sitting around like a sitting around a fire or sitting around just kind of sitting at a bar with a beer in their hand, just like from 1978 to like, you know, whatever, 2000, whatever, five, six, seven guys who basically were in charge of, you know, handing Eddie a guitar every night, tuning his guitars, like the tunings that, and the stringings, all wow. that stuff, like what that, what that, that must've been like. And, and, and how do you get that job? Like, if you look, I was pulling out 1984, which I have on vinyl. Um, and he, they list the guitar on the back and the liner notes not the liner, but the back cover, they list, you know, production, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Templeman, you know, their, their engineer, but they listen, they list the drum tech and the guitar tech. Mm -hmm. And it's not the same guitar tech when you type in Eddie Van Halen guitar tech. So you got to figure that you know, he's had a series of them, mm -hmm. but how do you get that job? 
It's like yeah, no pressure, no, no pressure. Uh, Eddie Van Halen tells the story that uh, he had a good, very close relationship with Les Paul. Tells a story. Les Paul called him up one night and says, uh, "You know, me, you, and Leo Fender were the only people who knew how to build build guitars. No right. pressure, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Eddie Van Halen was not only a tone chaser, always in search of the perfect tone." He, 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 he was a guitar builder. He constantly experimented. That's the whole evolution of his Frankenstrat guitar. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen that interview that he gives. It's an interview that he gives in Washington, D.C. It's a Smithsonian to... thing, yeah. Yeah, because as, as an immigrant, he gets an award, and it's like yeah. a two-hour interview. Phenomenal. That... Yeah, and, and, and he talks about that. And you almost get the impression, like you clearly know he's a genius, right? Like... He's almost a little off in a way. I don't know. If, yeah, I don't mean to say this loosely that he's on the spectrum in any way, mm -hmm. but he's he's got that genius kind of delay. Yeah, and and he's mm -hmm. a little he's a little he. You can just tell he's beating to a different beat. Absolutely. Uh, but he was just, you know, he was just like putting these guitars together like in his garage, right? And yep, and experimenting with different types of pickups and all this kind of stuff. And, and it's just amazing that, and, and maybe that's what it takes to get the sound that he got, right? To be truly, truly that innovative. That sound, you, you could not duplicate it. You could not duplicate it. <laughs> he had such a facility with his fingers. He had such a musical IQ. Uh, it struck me as someone who was also very mathematical. I find a lot of these great type of hard rock metal guitarists they seem to have a kind of a mathematical engineering mind. You know, they, they seem to, they see a lot of different pieces all at once. But uh, he was a phenomenal tech. And uh, no pressure to be his guitar, guitar tech. Yeah, yeah and just, Tony, can we talk about that? that you brought that up and, and, it, and it, 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 land, it landed without enough emphasis. Yeah. I want to see that documentary. Right. I want to see... Yeah the one hour Netflix special. Hello, Netflix, Amazon Plus. I want to see the documentary where all of Eddie's guitar techs oh, get in a room and there's a fireplace and there's some guitars there and they talk about what he wanted, what they supplied, how they got the job, what they did, what they're yeah. doing now. I, I want to see that. I want to uh, do that, somebody. Yeah, it's kind of like it's 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 it's. It, I think it's waiting. It's 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 waiting for a producer. It's waiting for a documentary filmmaker. Yeah, it's 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 waiting for, waiting for a crowdfund. It's waiting for us. Tommy, the the elephant in the. It's not the elephant in the room, but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this back to you. Um, we've we've talked about all of the members of Van Halen, except for uh -huh. Sammy right. Hagar. Yeah. So <laughs> so for Gary Chiron. Am I pronouncing it correctly? So we basically have just, you know, spoken about mm -hmm. the first six albums and in 1978 to 1984, 1984, right? So six years, six albums. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I'm sure we're not alone. Uh, no, 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 we're not. When I think it comes to we didn't Hale talk about fans. 5150, OU812. Oh, 5112. No. I did. I did listen to a lot of that stuff this week, yep. and um, I, 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 you know what I realized? I realized that 
everything I felt about that music when it first came out was <laughs> it, it stayed the same. Mm. It didn't evolve. I am. It, it's fine. It's, yeah. it, it's it's not the Van Halen I love. No. Like, like why can't this be love? has got a great riff. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. It, it's that's a Hagar riff because I think Eddie's playing keyboards on it. But mm-hmm. and and that's fine. And Pound Cake already used a, a electric drill. Cool, great backstory. But that music just doesn't and it, it doesn't resonate with me. But also. All right, I'm a big David Lee Roth fan. Mm-hmm. And by the time stuff rolls around and Hagar comes in, it's mm-hmm. 85 mm-hmm. now, 86 now. I'm an older guy. Yeah, I, I'm a little a bit older. And, and I, I don't like, all right, well, those are love songs on the radio. Those, those are rock and roll love songs on the radio. Not what I'm into right now. And I already got my David Lee. I got my Van Halen uh, prescription filled and and I'm good. I, I, I don't By this time, it. Tommy, you're moving on to King Crimson. <laughs> uh, it, well, let me say, what are we talking about? 86? No, by this time, I'm moving on to Jesus and Mary Chain for sure. In a big way. Um, but, uh, it, right. So it's like, I'm not listening to Van Halen's Hagar stuff. Um, I have read a bunch about Hagar and I've seen interviews recently, mm-hmm. uh, his time in the band seems like, yeah, he was, he was a fine guy. I, I didn't give him as much credit at the time as he should have, because he came off as sort of a, a, a new kind of buffoon with yeah, Cabo right. Wabo and yeah. the tequila Party stuff. And, yeah. But apparently he was, it was much more centered than that. I know that Eddie tried to keep him in the studio recording one night and, and Sammy's like, I just want to get home to my family. You send a new baby. I want to go home. Mm-hmm. And Eddie's just like, one more take, one more take, one more take. What's your commitment to the band? And I was like, hmm, okay, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe Sammy had some stuff to him. Maybe he had some grit and, mm-hmm. and he was uh, worth more of my consideration than I gave him. But the music, no, sorry. And Tony, you picked the right guy. You know me. You know, you know that like <laughs> I am I like bands evolving, but I don't like when bands change. We've had this discussion previously in the podcast. So I know you teed me up right there. Uh when I'm listening to Van Halen, I do not gravitate uh to the to the Sammy Hager era. To I me just it's don't. invisible. I mean, let's be clear, it's just invisible to me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you perfect to but me I, it's invisible it's just, it's just invisible. i mean I, and by the way finish what you started is a good track what's the other one? Oh boy dream there's a lot of one there's a lot of soft ones uh um, yeah but but it's just it, to me that's not they're, they're different it's yeah i mean yeah it sounds like all that stuff that aerosmith was doing to get it on movie soundtracks yeah. i mean big fat money <laughs> That balance. I mean, that's. Uh, yeah, that, don't know that, it. Don't know it. Don't know uh, it. Don't know it. That's a good one, but um, I would I would like to to put a, a little closure that for their last album, the 2012, a different kind of truth. I, I encourage everyone to listen to as is. Um, I think it's one of the most bad ass songs. Uh, it's Wolfgang on bass, by the way. Um, I think not having Michael Anthony, I think the album loses something in background vocals. But I have to say that's the last album they did with David Lee. And as is, I will, I will, I will put that up against some of the greatest Van Halen songs. 
Blast it. Listen to it. They are just crushing it. Absolutely crushing it. Awesome. I'll check it out. So there we go. Did we do our band justice here? I think we did. I think so. All right. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. And don't forget, you can go to Spotify to hear the playlist for this podcast episode, all the songs that we talked about. And if you enjoyed us, tell your friends, tell your family, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Vinyl Salad. We're out of here. Bye. <laughs>